We're in uh, week seven of a series that we're doing on the life of Jesus. We've been asking uh, uh, questions. Who is Jesus? What's he like? What is he about? What's his message? And what is he trying to do? What's So man, message, mission. Now, so we've been mostly going through the Gospels to talk about these things. And if you've been reading the Gospels, you may have noticed that... Uh, there's just a, there's a little bit about Jesus' birth and his early years, his uh, childhood. There's nothing about Jesus' life from basically age 12 to age 30. There's quite a bit about the three years of what we call his public ministry. But about 30% of the Gospels deals with the, just the last week of his life. And here at Journey, we're going to spend the next few weeks, the next several weeks, going into Easter Sunday, focusing on this last week of Jesus' life on earth. Today, we're going to look at the first two days. We're going to look at a passage in Luke 19, verses 28 to 48. And uh, there'll be four incidents we're going to take a look at in, in, those, in that passage. Uh, first couple of days of this uh, last week of Jesus' life on earth. So as we go through this passage, I read it as we go through it. Remember, what does this passage say about who Jesus is? What does it say about his message? What does it say about his mission? Okay? So Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying this colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and harm you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize 
the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Here's the big idea I want to try to present this morning. The big idea is this. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king who comes to present his claim. And the big question is, how will we respond to Jesus the king? Will we trust him? Will we honor him? Will we follow him? Will we submit to him? Will we be be like him? Will we enter into his mission? So starting with the first passage, uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 29 to uh, 28 to 34. This is a weird passage. I think this is a weird passage. So, I mean, think about it. Jesus is coming into this area, and he's, he's on the outskirts of Bethany and Bethphage. He says, hey, you, you two guys, come over here. So he gathers two of his disciples. He says, I want you to go into this town ahead of you. Go into the village, and you're going to see this donkey there, this, this young donkey, this colt. And what I want you to do is go untie it and lead it out. And if anybody stops you and says, why are you untying this, this colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. And the disciples do it. I mean... I mean, we all like and respect Pastor Tom, right? But if Pastor Tom came to me and said, hey, Lou, there's an Infinity dealership down the street. I want you to go there. You're going to find this white M37, never, you know, zero mileage, never been driven. I want you to go up to this M37. The door's going to be unlocked. Open the door, take the keys that are in the visor, start the car and drive off. And if anybody stops, you just say, Pastor Tom needs it. You know, I have a lot of respect for Tom, but there's not a chance in the world I would do that. I know what would happen. I would not be here. (laughs) But the disciples do it. And not only do they do it, they go into the town, but it's exactly the way Jesus says. They go into the village, they see the colt, they untie it, they get stopped, they get asked, why are you untying this colt? They say, the Lord needs it. And so, sure, take it. And they come back with the colt. We're going to find out in a minute why Jesus wants this, this donkey, this colt. I'll get to it. But what are we supposed to learn from this? Now, some people say that, you know, this is just, you know, Jesus just prearranged this deal. He knew he was going to need this colt, so he prearranged it. So, no big deal. So, is that what we're supposed to get out of it? That Jesus is a good planner? He thinks ahead? Well, I think that's true. He does that. But I think there's more to it than that. It's funny the way Luke puts it. He, he repeats twice. He says it twice. The Lord needs it. He goes out of his way to, to use that phrase. The Lord needs it. Luke is trying to say to us through this passage is that he's the king. Everything, all that I have belongs to Jesus. 
Everything. Clothes I wear, the food I eat, the house I live in, the car I drive, the energy and skills I have, all of that belongs to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the creator king. He exists because Jesus made it so. Everything exists because Jesus made it so. It belongs to him. Every atom of this universe comes because of Jesus. Every person in this world exists because of Jesus. All that I am, all that I have, all that you are, all that you have belongs to Jesus. It's not that Jesus borrows from us. It's that we borrow from Jesus. In fact, we don't even borrow. He freely gives it. He lets us use it. We don't even have to ask most of the time. But there are times when Jesus asks us to return to him what he's given to us for his use. And the question is, when he asks us to return something that he's given to us, do we give it freely with an open hand? Or do we begrudge him asking for his possession to be returned? The Lord needs it. The owners of that cold got that. They gave it to Jesus. May we be like them. May we we get it too. The Lord needs it. There are things that he's given us for a purpose. He wants us to do something with it. And he knows what he wants to do with it. So moving on. They come back with the cult. The first thing they do with the cult is they start putting their cloaks on it. Now, why do they do that? Because the disciples get it. They know that Jesus is the king. And kings don't ride bareback. Not in that culture. I don't know if they ride bareback in any culture, actually. But so they put their their, their cloaks on it. And the text continues. They brought it to verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks and cloaks, put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. What they're saying is, Jesus, we recognize that you're big. You're the king. And kings don't ride on rutted, muddy roads. So they, it's a way of honoring Jesus. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So a crowd, crowds kind of seems to come out of nowhere. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. In that area, just just recently, Jesus had raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. And some of them, a lot of them had heard the stories. Some of them had actually seen that. They'd also heard stories or seen Jesus do things like make the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf to hear. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen Jesus do a lot of miracles. And they were hoping, really hoping, that Jesus was the one they'd been waiting for. Because they bears for God to send a rescuer, a deliverer. And time and time again, their hopes have been disappointed, dashed. Because one foreign conqueror after another had come to oppress them. They're waiting for a deliverer. And they'd seen Jesus do. But this whole cold thing's a big deal, too. 
You see, when Jesus, he fulfilled a prophecy that was prophesied 500 years some odd, 500 some odd years earlier by the prophet Zechariah. If you turn with me, let me read a passage for you. Zechariah, by the way, is a sect. You get in the Old Testament, you get Malachi, and just before Malachi, you get Zechariah, last two books of the uh, Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. His rule, not Rome's rule, will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah is saying that God will send his king. And when Jesus gets on that colt and starts proceeding, parading, if you will, into Jerusalem, he's saying, I am that king. And when the crowd sees Jesus on that colt, they say, yeah, you are the king. This is what we've been waiting for. And they just erupt in joy. They erupt in joy. They've been waiting 800 years. And here it is. This is, they erupt with joy. But there's some religious leaders, some Pharisees there who aren't quite so happy. In fact, they're enraged. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. How dare you? And Jesus says, I tell you, if they don't speak, the stones will rise up and shout out praise. Why? Because all creation is waiting for the king to come. Creation recognizes Jesus the King. You know, we live in New England. Cynical, secular, relativistic, you might even say self-righteous New England. And in New England, it's not considered proper, politically correct, to proclaim that Jesus is the king. In New England, they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And the sad part is that too often, the people of God in New England, the church, we hear that cry and we let it intimidate us. Let our culture tell us to shut up. We listen to it. We don't want to offend. We don't want to raise a ruckus. We don't want to turn people off. And Jesus says, not just to the Pharisees, but to everyone, if you don't speak, even the stones will cry out. So what will we do with this fact that Jesus is king 
who's come to declare his kingship. Whose command will we hear? Jesus says, preach, proclaim. Our culture says, shut up. There's an old Mercy Me song. Ain't no rock. Some of you probably heard it. Ain't no rock gonna cry out in my place as long as I'm alive I glorify. Yeah, his holy name, yeah. Is there a rock that's gonna take your place? Is there a rock that's gonna take my place? Ain't no rock. Ain't no rock. Crowd gets it. They're praising Jesus and they're joining the parade. To take a bad turn. Here's another key question. This crowd is so joyfully passionately, almost recklessly shouting out their praises for Jesus. Blesses the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The same crowd, five days later, is going to be part of the crowd that screams out, crucify him, crucify him. How is that possible? Jesus gives us a clue in the next section. As he, starting verse 41, 41 to 44. As he approached, approached Jerusalem and saw the, the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming upon you. Jesus comes up to the crest of the Mount of Olives. He's descending and he sees the city in front of him. And he starts to weep. And he's not weeping because he knows what will happen to him. He knows that he's going to the cross. But he's not weeping because of that. He's weeping because he knows that he's come to bring rescue, to bring deliverance, to bring peace to Jerusalem. And he knows they're going to reject the peace that he offers. He knows that he's coming to them as their king as God, their king, and he knows they will not recognize it when a rubber finally hits the road. He knows what will happen to them. He knows they're going to be destroyed because of the choices they've made, because they have rejected the path of peace that he lays out for them. He knows that they will be destroyed. Less than 40 years later, Roman legions encircled Jerusalem And they tear down the temple stone by stone, killing tens of thousands. Because the Jews decided they'd rather rebel against Rome and take up the sword and go to war against Rome. They'd rather do that. They'd rather trust in their own swords than trust in Christ the King who came to them with his brand of peace. And in fact, they don't just do it one time, but three times. 
They rebel from AD 66 to 70. They recover a little bit. There's a war in AD 113, 115. And finally, a last one, the Bar Kokhba rebellion that destroys all of the city and massacres thousands upon thousands and thousands of Jews and almost obliterates them from the face of the earth because they can't learn. They don't want to learn. Jesus weeps over that. If you, even you, had only known the path of peace I bring to you. So what does he mean by that path of peace? What he means is the gospel. What he means is the fact that he came to Jerusalem lowly and riding on a colt, a donkey, because he is not a conquering hero king at this stage, but a suffering savior king. The way he's going to establish his rule is not by the sword, but by the cross. He's going to hang on a cross for the sins of the world. Their sins, my sins, your sins. And it's that path that ultimately brings peace. It's the path that says, I'm going to love my enemies, even my enemies. I'm going to lay down my life in self crowd should have caught that. Because you know that passage in Zechariah 9? The last six chapters of Zechariah, starting with chapter 9, have two big prophecies about the king who is to come. This king is a shepherd king, we're told in Zechariah. He's going to come and shepherd the flock of God and lead them to safety. And in chapter 12 of Zechariah, we're told he's going to be pierced in the flesh. He's going to be a king who comes with victory, but victory that comes through suffering, through dying. The crowd was good with, you know, he's going to come victorious and righteous. They weren't so good with he's going to come victorious and righteous because he lays down his life and expects his followers to do so as well. And that raises a question for us. All of us want to be rescued. All of us want to be rescued. We want Jesus to come through for us. Whether it's family problems, or health problems, or money problems, or whatever, we want Jesus to come through for us. We want him to rescue us, to deliver us. And the thing is, Jesus has come to rescue us. But he doesn't always rescue us the way we want to be rescued. And the question is, when Jesus offers a rescue different from the one we've imagined, will we receive it? Will we accept it? Will we surrender to it, submit to it, and allow Jesus to work out his plan for our lives? Will we accept the path of peace that Jesus has for us? And... As we look at our world, as we look at our city, as we look at our neighbors, our neighborhood, as we look at our campus or our workplace, and we see people who are lost and broken, will we, with Jesus, be willing to weep 
over them? Will we weep? Will we allow the brokenness of the world break our hearts? And will we then be willing to lay down our lives for the people around us, even our enemies? Will we be the channels of God's peace, of God's presence, of God's rescue, whatever the cost? Jesus weeps over the brokenness of the world. He invites his people to weep with him and to follow him into the world. He weeps over the city, and then the first thing he does is he goes into the temple courts, and he begins to drive out those who are selling. It's written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He goes into the temple courts. Why? Because the temple is the very center of Jewish life. It's the center of Jewish religious life. It's the place where God promised to meet his people. And the problem with the temple now is that the temple is corrupt. They have corrupted God's house. How they corrupted God's house. Jesus uses two phrases. From one from Isaiah 56, my house will be a house of prayer, and one from Jeremiah 7, you've made it a hiding place for thieves, a den of robbers. So let me read from Isaiah 56. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. Because the context in this case is really important for us. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. See, the temple was not meant just for the Jews. When you read 1 Kings, it's clear right from the beginning it wasn't meant to be just for the Jews. It was meant for a place where all the nations could gather to honor the God of the Jews, the God of the universe. But what happened to this temple? Well, there was this area called the court of the Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles could come to offer prayer. They weren't allowed into the inner part of the temple, but they did have this area designated for them, theoretically. Practically, what had happened is that the Jewish leaders had allowed that court of the Gentiles to be filled with people buying and selling and ripping people off. They created a system where people who came in to worship and to offer sacrifice had to stop off there and buy just the, the right kind of animal for sacrifice at an exorbitant cost. And in that area, they also had to exchange their currency for this Tyrian coinage that was the only currency acceptable to offer the temple tax. And guess who set the exchange rate? 
the Jewish leaders who reaped huge profits. So they had their finger in all of this. They were making big profits. And as a result, there was no place for the Gentiles to go if they wanted to get close to God, to the house of God. They were cut off. The temple was corrupt. Now, Jeremiah, there's this famous passage, Jeremiah 7, where Jeremiah is judging, he's holding up, and, and he's, he's saying to the people of Judah, you guys are corrupt. You come to the temple and you offer worship, but the rest of your life stinks, and you think it's okay to come in here and offer your sacrifices, despite all the things that you do. And the things that Jeremiah focuses on is that they're ripping off the poor and the widow and the orphan. They're creating obstacles for the outcasts to come to God. What Jesus is saying by using this passage from Jeremiah is he's saying that history is repeating itself. You've allowed the temple to be corrupt again. And it's not just that you're, you're sleazy and you're ripping people off. It's not just that you're stealing their money, but you're also making it Harder and harder and harder for people to come to God. You're cutting them off from God. Jews as well as Gentiles. You're robbing the people and you're robbing God. And you're using the temple as your hiding place. And so Jesus cleanses God's house, his house, because he is determined that the house of God will be a house of prayer for all peoples. All peoples. He will not allow anyone or anything to cut people off from God. Now, the temple's gone. No more temple. It got destroyed. Literally, stone by stone, it was taken down. But God still has a house. You are God's house. God has made his dwelling place in you, each one of you, each one of us, individually and collectively as God's church. We are the house of God. What kind of house will we be? And for whom will we be the house of God? Big questions. You know, some people in our culture call Christians hypocrites. Why do they do that? Because in some cases, not all cases, maybe not even in most cases, but in some cases, it is true. We say one thing and do another sometimes. We say God loved the world, and we hold up signs saying God hates whoever. We can't control what other people who claim the name of Jesus do. We can't. But we can, to some degree, control what we do, right? What kind of house of God will we be? Jesus would be so excited if we kept clean on the inside and made room to welcome others. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the king. He's the king who comes to declare his kingship. Jesus is the king, the compassionate king, the tender-hearted king who weeps over the brokenness of the world and stretches out his arms wide to embrace it, to welcome it. All of it. All of us. 
all of our friends. Jesus' message is a message of peace and a rescue of deliverance, of salvation. Bought at a price, his life stretched out on a cross. His mission, his mission is to draw people under his good, kind, gentle, wise, gracious rule so that he can save them and bring them to wholeness and redemption and peace. That's a parade you get excited about. That's a king worth following and praising. Let's do that. Let's do that with every breath we have, every second we have. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the great king and the good king. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Lord, help us to embrace your rule. Help us to proclaim your message. Help us, Lord, to extend your mission. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We offer you our praise. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.